Isaiah chapter 48. <clears throat> Sunday morning, or Sunday evening, we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And these Sunday mornings in the book of Isaiah, we're grabbing a, a little section out of the larger section that we study in the evening so we can examine it a little with a little more depth. And this morning we come to Isaiah chapter 48. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And uh, wave, get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. It'll be marked to our passage today for your convenience. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. A single verse this morning, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22. There is no peace says the Lord for the wicked. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this Bible that we hold in our hands. Thank you for the unique thing that it is in this world and in human history. Thank you for the revelation that you have given to us of yourself. And we thank you, Lord, for what is found in this single verse all of the truth that is bound up in it, and because it is in your book, Lord, we acknowledge how important this truth is to us. We think about how many things you could say and, and uh, you didn't include it in your words. So everything that's here is so important, and we pray that you would take this verse off of the pages of Scripture and that you would introduce it into the daily of our life and our walk with you and our thinking and processing of life as it comes at us a hundred miles an hour, it seems, every single day. Bless us as we study our word, your word, and as we uh, look, Lord, to learn about you as we do so. Anoint us with your Holy Spirit for that we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> In our text this morning, the Lord gives us very, very valuable insight into the lives of the wicked. And I think that interestingly and significantly, these words are not addressed supremely to the wicked though the wicked would do very well to take them to heart. But the fact of the matter is, is that this verse, these words are addressed to the righteous, to God's people. And they're addressed to us for reasons that we'll get to in just a moment. I think that if we're going to uh, understand what God has to say about the wicked, we've got to begin by asking ourselves and understanding how God defines them? How does God use the word? How broadly does he apply this word uh, wicked to people? Today in our culture, we almost exclusively reserve the word wicked for um, notorious uh, sinners, for notorious uh, criminals or wrongdoers. So we attach wicked to terrorists, uh, to serial killers, and the like. And the ranks of the wicked certainly include these kinds of people and many, many others that would come to each of our minds when we think of the word wicked. But from God's perspective, the wicked also includes a far broader group of people than these. Within the context of our passage, God includes those 
who fail to heed his commandments, verse 18. Uh, they pay no attention to his word. Uh, they have no interest in uh, his word at all. And they disregard his word. The very words spoken by God Almighty himself, they disregard them, they won't even listen to them, much less obey them. And so from the perspective of heaven, and that's the only perspective that ultimately matters, it is a wicked thing to fail to heed God's commandments. And then further in verse 20, it includes those who deliberately and openly disobey or violate his commandments. And in verse 20, God calls upon the children of Israel to flee from Babylon and to return to the land of Israel. And uh, when the opportunity came, he knew that Babylon was ultimately going to fall. Cyrus would become the king then of the Medo-Persian Empire that would follow the Babylonian Empire. Cyrus would then allow the Jews to return to the land. And God said, when that opportunity arises, then all of you need to flee Babylon and return to the land of Israel. But interestingly enough, we know historically and biblically that the overwhelming number of Jews, when that opportunity came, it, despite the commandment of God to return, they did not return to the land. They chose to remain in the land of Babylon. And so they chose to enjoy the comparative comforts of life there in uh, Babylon, the prosperity of life in Babylon as opposed to enduring this journey from Babylon to the uh, Canaan and then uh, enduring the hardship of rebuilding a land and the cities that had been destroyed. And God warned them against this wickedness of disregarding his command to return. After all, God had promised to the whole world to bring the Messiah into the world through the Jews and through their bloodline. And that could hardly happen if everyone stayed in Babylon and then the Jews were ultimately absorbed into the Gentile nations of the world. The salvation of the whole world, the coming of the Messiah hung in the balance over the obedience of this command of God to the children of Israel and what they chose to do with this commandment. And God said, it is a wicked thing to disregard obeying his commandments. Now, I don't think that anything, anyone who's paying attention in the world today would deny the fact that presently we live in a time in human history in which wickedness is increasing. Uh, the ranks of the wicked are increasing. I would say that their ranks are swelling at this particular point in time, both within our nation and around the world, whether it is ISIS or whether it is national or international drug lords or uh, the domestic gangs that plague our country 
or this new crime and act of, uh, of theft and all and destruction that's found now in the computer hackers that didn't exist a generation ago. It also includes criminals and crime in general and the criminals that commit these crimes swelling and it can also reach into just lying and cheating and and these kind of things that are becoming the norm within our our culture and within our world and everybody just says well everybody does it and so I'm going to do it too or can just speak to the fact that this increase of wickedness to the number of dishonest men and women who own or they operate businesses. How many um, kind of shysters there are and con men who rise up when, and sell terrible cars to people who are most in need of a dependable car or uh, do shoddy work with every intention of not fixing the roof that they've promised to do that, but taking the money and run. And these things are no longer an exception. They no longer horrify us any, any longer. It's just a shrug of the shoulder and, well, that's the way that it is and try to do better next time. And it's important to realize that all of this is being done not only in the violation of man's laws. Wickedness is expressed not merely in the violation of man's laws, but also in violation of God's laws. And when that occurs, when wickedness is occurring and wickedness is increasing, God takes note of it. He takes note of when his word is being violated and when it's being disobeyed, and he will address it in his own way and in his own time. But today, maybe you're like me, it seems as if every day the news is just filled with this literal barrage of crime and violence and corruption and wrongdoing. And the avalanche of wickedness is so great on an international and a national, sometimes even on a local level, that you barely have time to absorb it that day before it's all washed away from our memories by a new day that's filled with the same. And it's impossible to keep up with this onslaught, even the reports of it, the news of it. I mean, it wasn't that many years ago where some atrocity would occur, some uh, horror of man uh, against mankind against his fellow man. And, and it would happen maybe on a yearly basis or it would happen on a monthly basis and the population would have a chance to absorb that. Law enforcement would have a chance to adapt itself to helping that never happen again. There was a little bit of space and time, but now the crises are one after another. There isn't even an opportunity to catch our breath. We can't even fully absorb the wickedness has occurred just the day before in human history, much less to assess it and develop a plan to move against it and, and uh, to knock it back in some way and resist it in some way to push it back. And the culprits behind all of this wickedness, they're not dogs and cats, they're people. It all it comes as a result of wicked people who are turning this world into a wicked world. The world is wicked because men and women are becoming more wicked. And all of this is the result of our world and our nation moving away from God and the God of the Bible, away from his word and his commandments and his definitions of 
good and bad and right and wrong. Because God's word is designed to produce a world and to produce a nation and a city in which the righteous prosper, uh, that encourages and rewards the righteous, and that penalizes and restricts wickedness. And when you move away from God's word as uh, a world or as a nation, you are now either purposely or inadvertently setting up something that now rewards wickedness. And it rewards corruption and wrongdoing. And then as a result, it discourages and it penalizes and it even persecutes righteousness. And you end up with a world that discourages the righteous and righteousness and it rewards and encourages wickedness and unrighteousness. And increasingly, that's the world and the nation that we live in as Christians. And so... This denunciation of the wicked and of their lifestyle is as needed today as ever it was 3,000 years ago when God declared it. And this denunciation is not needed as, in, as much today as it was 3,000 years ago supremely for the wicked but for us as Christians. Because given the fact that modern culture has largely thrown away God's definitions of right and wrong, God's definitions of morality and immorality, and then has replaced them with their own, they have to now defend the superiority of their new morality over the old morality of God. And in order to defend the new morality and to cause people to consider it to be superior to God's morality, then they've got to indoctrinate everyone in these new definitions. And so they romanticize the life of sin. They romanticize the lives of the wicked. Television is filled with this kind of thing. The romanticizing of people who are living uh, in violation, open violation of God's word. And the people who adhere to this new immorality are made into the heroes of our culture. And they're put before us as such, whether in the realm of business or politics or entertainment. And there, you have the actors and the actresses. So this isn't a cheap shot related to the Academy Awards tonight. This happens to be the passage that we're in. But these actors and actresses and movie and television producers, those within the music industry who are involved in the advancement of evil and of wickedness and of the new immorality that is put out before us day and night. And these are the new heroes of the culture. These are the role models of the culture, not just the youth but of everyone and there's a whole machine, a whole system that's in place that's intended to indoctrinate us into thinking that this is the way to live. This is the means of enjoying life and the way to prosperity, the way to happiness, the way to peace. And it's very effective. You look at the multitudes of people who follow. They become the disciples of these musicians or the bands or the 
actors or the actresses and the entertainment uh, entertainers, despite their part in the advancement of evil, their popularity is off the graph today. And then there's the second thing surrounding all of this that puts pressure upon the righteous. When things get turned upside down in a nation morally, and it becomes more and more wicked and less and less righteous, then as it, as we've already mentioned, becomes a place that rewards and encourages wickedness and corruption and wrongdoing, and it opposes and persecutes those who practice righteousness, as opposed to rewarding righteousness and producing an environment that allows the righteous to prosper, and actively opposing and shaming wickedness, then ultimately, and this is a, the big thing that I want to come to th this morning, then ultimately you dishearten the righteous. You dishearten the righteous within a land, within the world. And there's a temptation for them then to conclude that righteousness doesn't pay anymore, that the scales are now so tipped in the direction of the wicked, the unrighteous. And so uh, if you can't beat them, then to join them. And the temptation becomes greater and greater in that kind of an environment, whether in business or as a school teacher or as a student or the owner of a bakery or as a parent attempting to raise godly children. And when things get to this place in human history, where wickedness appears to be getting the upper hand, it can really create a great struggle for the righteous, even the most spiritual among the righteous. I think of King David in this regard, who was almost stumbled by this very thing, all of this very thing in his day. And he records the struggle that he faced in Psalm 73. He records his struggle concerning the prosperity of the wicked, how all of it almost stumbled him in his relationship with God, and it almost stumbled in him in his commitment to God's ways. He said in Psalm 73, Surely I've, I've cleansed my heart in vain, and I've washed my hands in innocent. In other words, God, the way things are in the world today, it doesn't pay to be righteous. It doesn't pay to be holy. It only pays to be wicked. And he declared that he kept these thoughts to himself. He didn't verbalize these things. Lord, everything's upside down. Everything's backwards. The, the whole game is set up now to make life difficult for us and make it easier for those that hate you and those that disobey you and resist you. And he thought all of these things, but he said, I never verbalized them because if I verbalized them, I didn't want to stumble others who loved God or tempt them to then think the same things and then be untrue to God by abandoning the ranks of the righteous and joining the ranks of of the wicked as a result. And as David is in this sea of this thinking and this confusion and the temptation of all of it, it's a, it's a sea of confusion that all of us face who are engaged in the world in any way today in this room. And what brought godly 
clarity and a godly conclusion to this crisis in David's life. He said, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful to me. He said, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end, the end of the wicked. He said, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought into desolation. As in a moment, they're utterly consumed with tears. As a dream when one awakes, and so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. And when he entered into the sanctuary of God, that is for our, our, you know, the way we would say it today, is he went into church. And as he began to view all of this and process it, and from God's perspective and from the eternal perspective, all of the envy that he had of the wicked, it disappeared as he considered the judgment that awaited them and the misery of their life, even this side of eternity, a life far from God, far from his life, his beauty, his truth, his presence. The Bible teaches that the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. Believe it. Believe it to be true. It is to live life against all of creation. It is to live life going against the stream of how God has created the universe and the world and man. It is to go against the stream of how God intended thing to be, things to be on a spiritual level, on a physical level, on a mental level, on an emotional level. It is to fight against God in his ways every moment of every day. And so no wonder so many people are breaking down under the weight of wickedness and transgression and sin. And God makes sure that the way of the transgressor is hard. But God makes us to know that for all of their prosperity, for all of their fame, for all of their popularity and all of their power, there's one thing that the wicked do not possess and that they do not experience, and that is peace. There is no peace for the wicked. The wicked will never tell you that. They will never publicly admit that. But God tells us what they won't tell us. Any appearance on the part of the wicked that they give of living a peace-filled or carefree life is an out-and-out lie. When God says here there is no peace for the wicked, the word no in terms of peace, it means nothing, it's non-existent, zero, completely empty, vacuous. They don't know or experience anything of this thing called peace because wickedness and peace are mutually exclusive. They cannot co exist in the way that God has created things and the way that he has created man. And the wicked do not know or experience. They know nothing of peace with God. 
This is the peace that comes with knowing that whatever is going on in the world, whatever is going on in my life, I know that I'm right with God. And how wonderful that peace is to have peace with God in those times where circumstances become difficult and I don't understand them and they are hard and they are confusing and yet there is this peace that is a foundation in our hearts that is deeper than the circumstances and we look at it and say all I know is that I have peace with God. I know that I am right with him and I am right with him for having put my faith in Jesus, his son, for the forgiveness of my sins. The wicked live life engaged in a constant war against God, a constant battle with God. Second, they know nothing of the peace of God. Not only they know nothing of peace with God, they know nothing, or, uh, 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 but they know nothing of the peace of God. And this speaks of that supernatural peace that comes from God, a peace that's as big as as God is a peace that's bigger than every trial or circumstance that we face in life. Paul wrote about it in Philippians chapter 4, and he said of this peace, the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding, it will guard your heart and your minds through Christ Jesus. That peace when we are in difficult circumstances and God looks at things and everything about the circumstance ought to be driving us crazy or into worry or into anxiety and God bestows his peace upon us and we say, I don't understand it. For who I am and how I am in the natural, I ought to be a nervous wreck and yet God has given me a peace that this is going to be okay, that he is in charge of the situation. It's not, I'm, I'm experiencing a peace that I know that doesn't come from me and it doesn't come from any other human being. It's a peace that God has supplied to me. The wicked never know that feeling. They never know that peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace... I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The wicked know nothing of that peace. They do not know peace with their fellow man for the simple reason that all sin and all wickedness is, is, is expressed at the expense of other human beings. So the wicked do not know peace in their personal relationships. Somebody is always a victim of their uh, wickedness. Somebody is always bit by their wickedness. They don't know the peace of a clear conscience. Imagine trying to live life with a guilty conscience, especially once you become a Christian and you know what that is. But the wicked don't have the peace or know the peace of a clear conscience. Their guilt weighs upon them. And even those who appear not to care about uh, their life of wrongdoing, they have to exert monumental amounts of mental and emotional and physical resources to keep up that front. The writer of the book of Hebrews expresses the blessing of being freed from an evil conscience or a guilty conscience through faith in Christ. He said, let us now draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled as Christians 
from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, living life with the absolute confidence of the forgiveness of our sins. The wicked know nothing about that. Some years ago, one leader in the field of mental health declared that if he could find a solution to guilt, he could empty half of the population out of the mental hospitals in the United States of America. And I'll tell you, I believe it. And even if the wicked sear their conscience, and so often they have to sear their conscience in order to live with themselves, it's important for us to recognize as Christians that a seared conscience is not peace. It appears to be peace, but it is not peace. Insensibility of conscience is not peace. The disabling of conscience is not peace. Staying drunk and staying high through life is not peace. The wicked are further are not at peace with themselves, and as a result, they're impossible to live with. A wicked person makes life miserable for everyone around them. Further, their life is not peaceful, but rather restless and uneasy and constantly churning. In Isaiah chapter 57, later in the same book that we're studying this morning, verse 20, God declares, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. The wicked have no peace of mind. They live in the constant dread of being exposed and being discovered. They must always be looking over their shoulder for law enforcement or being ripped off or killed by those who are even more wicked than them. That's the portion of the wicked. I was watching a TV show, Perfect Waste of Time, several years ago. But it was about gangs, and it was, it was very, very interesting. I wanted to see how gangs have changed since I was a member of a gang. Just kidding. Just kidding. I think she enjoyed that a little too much. I was busy playing basketball, by the way. But they had this thing where they had a bunch of old, uh, older gang bangers, you know, that had been arrested, spent most of their life in prison, the whole deal and everything. And for some reason, even though the gangs were supposed to kill them if they ever left or whatever, they left and nobody was messing with them. They were talking about what gangs were, you know, 30 years ago in the United States of America. And then they talked about the gangs today. And they said, you got these old gang members saying, the new gang members, they scare me to death. They have no conscience at all. So there's that fear, that fear that someone more wicked and more without a, a conscience, a greater searing of their conscience is going to come and rip them off or kill them. So they have no peace of mind. They have no peace of heart. All they know is worry and fear and envy and jealousy. They have no confidence concerning the future, no peace concerning the future. They don't experience what the righteous person experiences, and that is the confidence that goodness and mercy is going to follow us all the days of our lives. They know better than that. They know 
They know no peace in their death. They know no peace after their death. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that following their death, there is but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and the fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. So if this passage is written, not supremely to the wicked, but as a warning to the righteous concerning the wicked, then it's intended to protect us in some way. How is that? By raising the question concerning the price or the value that we place upon this thing called peace in our lives. Is wickedness worth living a life devoid of peace? Is that exchange worth it? And God warns us, the God who knows all things, who sees everyone's life not only in public but in the privacy of the dark rooms of their home and further because he's even in the condition of a person's heart and their mind God tells us the one who sees all things and says that is not a good exchange Jesus promises us as his disciples he said peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He did not promise us riches as Christians. He did not promise us a carefree life as Christians. But he did promise us peace. And in doing so, he thought he was doing something wonderful for us. He was under the impression that in doing so, he was enriching our lives in a way that money and power and fame gained at the expense of wickedness can never provide. He was under the understanding and promising peace to us that he was giving us something that is invaluable something that is priceless. This Christians, how do we measure wealth? How do we measure our wealth? Truly, honesty and the privacy of our own heart. When someone mentions wealth, what thought comes to your mind? What picture comes into your mind? Do we measure wealth solely in terms of money? or possessions? Or do we measure our wealth in terms of peace and joy, friendship with God, the forgiveness of sins and heaven, the true marks of wealth in a human life? And God knowing that even our great inclination to think of our wealth solely in terms of money or material possessions and our inclination to forget or to minimize those things that are most valuable in life, the true riches that 
have been provided to us through our Lord and through our Savior, our friend Jesus, he gives us an important reminder from his word, and we need it, don't we? Peace. Peace with God and peace from God is priceless stuff. More valuable than the experience of all of the wickedness of this world. Are you a wicked man or woman this morning? Have you lived all of your life ignoring God, his word, maybe even known better, raised in church, raised by godly parents, and you've lived your life in a deliberate violation of God's commandments, but now you want out, and you know firsthand that sin isn't all that it's cracked up to be. You say, I'd give up all of that wickedness to know one day of peace in my heart. One hour of true peace in my life. And here's Jesus' offer to you personally. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that's you, would believe in him, that is Jesus, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And there is a life of peace that you have never known on the other side of that commitment to Christ and that prayer to give your life to him. Peace with God, and then the peace of God. And it's real, and it's waiting for you, and God knows that you have need of it. Are you backslidden this morning as a Christian? You say, how can you, somebody be backslidden in church? Stop. And here you are this morning, you bought the lie, you got enticed into a life of wickedness and sin and you knew better and it looked so appealing to you but it cost you your peace. The peace that's own, found only in knowing God and walking and just a simple obedience with him and his commandments and fulfilling his plan for your life. You return to him today. That peace is waiting for you. And sure, you learned a lesson the hard way, but you know nothing is a complete loss that we learn something from. And nothing is a complete loss when a person says, I'm going to go out there and I think that God is, you know, all of this is bunk in the Bible and all of this is nonsense and I don't want to live that kind of a life at least not yet. I'm going to go out and experience wickedness and all of these new definitions of right and wrong that either men or women have foisted upon me or if I've come up on my own. And always for a person who maintains some clarity of conscience and who fails to sear their conscience in that environment, always like the prodigal son, there is that realization that I have sold 
what is priceless in life for nonsense and for addiction and for dung and for refuse, as Paul would call it in the book of Philippians. And then there's that desire at that point in time, now fully realizing that peace and the things of the Lord and the things that are truly priceless and without value, I mean, in terms of being able to ascribe and describe the value that it has, and that light goes on, and there's a place for you now this morning, with a light having gone on, to come back to God and to come back to the peace that you lost and could never experience in a wicked life. Maybe you're here today and you say, I'm not thinking about, I'm backslidden, I've got one foot in the church and one foot in the world, and I'm still enamored with all of that out there, and, and I, don't, I don't know that I want to give that up even for the peace of God and, and uh, experiencing that in my life. I haven't come to that place yet. Well, let me read a few words to you from God. God declares, therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, John wrote, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues. John wrote in his first epistle, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Get off of the fence. Even in the song, the new song that we were taught here this morning, commit your heart fully to the things of the Lord. Come out from what God has warned he must ultimately judge and destroy so that you are not caught in that judgment when it comes down. As a Christian, has the media or the entertainment machine or some individual in your life very nearly convinced you into thinking that you're wasting your life living for God? and living for his plan for your life, that the life of sin is the way to go rather than the life of righteousness. Well, listen this morning to what they will never tell you and what God alone, your creator, the lover of your soul, will tell you. There is no peace where you are being tempted to go. There is no peace for the wicked. It's a bad decision. And to recognize that this morning as a bad decision and put that temptation out of your heart this morning. Put that temptation, that thought, that lie out of your mind this morning. And finally, do you know the Lord and love the Lord this morning? But in recent days and weeks and months, like King David, 
you're being stumbled by the prosperity of the wicked. You haven't told your husband or your wife. You haven't told anyone in your home fellowship or anyone else. It's all in the privacy of your own heart. But you look at the prosperity of the wicked in a nation that has turned things upside down to where the advantage is increasingly being given to the wicked instead of to the righteous. You see that the scales have tipped. The reward is going toward the wicked and in business and elsewhere in life as opposed to being tipped toward rewarding the righteous. And so now you're tempted to start to cut corners in your decision-making like the ungodly do. Don't do it. You may make a few more dollars than you might otherwise, but it will be at the expense of your relationship with God and at the expense of your peace. There is no future in wickedness, not in this life and not in the life to come. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, this morning for your word, the beauty and the necessity, the clarity of this single verse. And Lord, we readily confess that we need to hear this today every bit as much as your people needed to hear it 2,700 years ago. We see things changing rapidly around us, Lord. The temptation can come into our hearts to join the wicked, join their new definitions of right and wrong and good and bad and morality and immorality. We worry, Lord, about the fact that we're not going to be able to prosper as righteous people in the field in which you have put us. These are all things that you're aware of. And we thank you for so strong and so wonderful a warning to protect us from joining the ranks of the wicked under any motivation. And this morning, Lord, we also thank you for how rich you have made us in this thing called peace. If you had not made us rich in any other way because of Jesus, other than peace, we would be the richest people in the world to walk, Lord, day in and day out at peace with you, knowing that we are right with you, and then enjoying your peace and the blessing and the joy and the fullness that comes with obeying your word and fulfilling your call upon our lives. And Lord, it's so easy to get everything turned around and we consider what is comparatively valueless in life and we give it the priceless category and then we take these things that are indescribably rich and priceless and we give them the lightest esteem. And we thank you, Lord, for this reminder to us today of how precious this thing called peace is in our life and how worthy it is of being protected 
by living an obedient and holy life. And we thank you for that reminder this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are here today and you have never 